started a series several months ago that lasted longer than I wanted it to, which seems to be a pattern with me. Hopefully it's not a horrible pattern. The sermons were addressing the law of God and the Christian. And uh, if you remember back, I quoted Alistair Begg. He said, nothing illustrates the challenge in dealing with the abiding sanctity of God's law more than the sorry state of the Lord's Day in contemporary evangelicalism. Now, he said that in the early 2000s when he wrote, uh, when the first edition of his book on the Ten Commandments came out. It's very readable. I remember somebody, might have been somebody here, sent me a link to the sermon that was on, is it KKLA? And I thought, KKLA is playing a sermon on the Fourth Commandment that actually gets it right? This is great. Well, they reprinted the book, the second printing. He didn't change the words. It's still uh, the same. Now, Alistair Begg is originally from Scotland, and some people have said, well, Begg's got that Scottish tradition, that Sabbath tradition from Scotland in him, and he acknowledges he does. He just traces the tradition back to the Old and New Testaments, okay? So I think he's right um, on the issue of not only the sad state of the, uh, the Lord's Day in American evangelicalism, but... Uh, if you've read his book on the Ten Commandments, you know that he takes the what I'm calling, unfortunately, the older view of the Ten Commandments, and especially the Fourth Commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Begg's position, as he argues it in that book, is basically the position of our church's confession of faith. And uh, it's nothing new in the history of the church. There was a time some of us might be old enough where this was true, namely, people from, you name the denomination, as long as it was a conservative Protestant one, Sunday was different for everybody. Uh, I lived in a small farm community where Sunday was different for almost everybody. Um, the pharmacy, the pharmacist would open up if you called him. Otherwise, he stayed closed. There's only 1,200 people in the town. Uh, so in case of emergency, he would go down there and give you whatever you needed, Otherwise, he didn't. Those little things are, have eroded, you know, out basically of our culture. Now, everything's open on Sundays, and everything's a possibility for Christians, so much so that in a book on this issue, which is a very helpful book and easy to read by Bruce Ray, he says, many people see the Sabbath or Lord's Day as an infringement of their personal liberty, a day that God has taken from them instead of a gift that he has given to them for rest, worship, and celebration. He titled the first chapter of his book, Sabbath." When I first saw that, I was going, come on, that's cheesy. It is cheesy, but he's, here's what he says. He says, McSabbath is here, worship services that are quick, easy, convenient, and user-friendly. No muss, no fuss. Little or no sacrifice required. Consumers can be in and out in less than an hour. So what is the Lord's Day? Is it related to the fourth commandment? That's the question we've been pursuing. If so, how and what should our Lord's Days look like? Those are the questions I want to help pursue today. So in this review and um, practical application. So here I have the Sabbath or Lord's Day in biblical perspective. I have, I think, five major headings, if you're taking notes. 
the first is the Sabbath is a creational institution. If you've heard any of the sermons, you know that several times I've argued this. The Sabbath is a creational institution. And a creational institution is something God gives for humans, not as Jews or Greeks, but just creatures created in the image of God, male and female. He gives for humans to do, like marriage, labor, and Sabbath. All these are grounded in the account of creation, are called creation ordinances. Listen to the word of God. Genesis 2, 1 through 3 leads uh, many to conclude this is a creation ordinance. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. So God takes six days to create, then enters into this divine rest. Now, I've said this before. Did it take God six days or did he take six days? If we say it took God six days, it kind of leads us to go, wow, he must have not had any more power. He couldn't have created faster than six days. Could God have created the heavens and the earth and then everything he did in the subsequent days after day one? Could he have done it in an instant? He didn't. It's not because he couldn't have or can't. So it must be, there must be some reason why God takes six days, and then after the, the crown jewel of the earthly creatures, man is created, the next day God rests. So it has to be for us, right? And that's the way the Christian tradition is understood. That God takes six days and then rests as a paradigm, as an example, as the divine exemplar for the creatures to follow him in. Creation week is God's way of really of revealing how he wants time accounted. So the seventh day week comes from God at creation. But what about the divine rest? If work is example for man to follow in, what is rest? Here's a question. At the on the seventh day did God go that was hard. I'm tired. Did God grow weary because he expelled, exerted, and depleted divine energy or power such that he needed to be like us? I'm tired, honey. I'm going to bed. I need to get rest to replenish. I don't think anybody here would say, yeah, God got tired. And if you do... Listen to this. Here's what God says in Isaiah 40, 28. Have you not known, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. So, okay, so we don't want to say whatever divine rest is in Genesis 2, 1 through 3. It means he's weary, it means he's tired. It can't mean that. So if the works of God were exemplar, exemplars, Examples for us to follow in, in labor and uh, pursuing, um, uh, pursuing our vocations, 
then maybe the first day can function that way, or the seventh day, excuse me, can function that way. Could it be that the rest of God on the seventh day was part of the pattern he wanted us to emulate? And the answer is yes, and you can go listen to the sermons I preached a long time ago. And seeing how other scripture texts look back to creation in relation to the Sabbath closes the deal on this. So let's keep going. Here's my first point. The Sabbath is a creational institution. My first text, Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Now jump over to Alexa. Alexa? Exodus. (laughs) Exodus chapter 20. This is the Ten Commandments. And uh, verse 11. Verse 8 is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. But look at verse 11. Because what verse 11 does is it recalls, it echoes Genesis 2, 1 through 3. So now we're allowing the Bible to shed light on the Bible. We're allowing a text that comes after Genesis to shed light on the meaning of Genesis. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Now here's the question. When did the Lord bless the Sabbath day and hallow it? The divine rest... On the seventh day of creation is the blessing and hallowing of the Sabbath for man, right? That's what verse 11 forces us to conclude. The Sabbath then is not unique to ancient Israel in the promised land or something like that. It's, it's like marriage and labor. It finds its roots and foundation in the creation, the order of creation itself. Now, this divine rest is very interesting, and I'm not going to get off the notes. Let's go to a third text. It's Mark chapter 2, 27. This text also echoes Genesis and helps us understand, how does God want me to live on his earth, okay? Mark two twenty seven says, and he said to them, the Sabbath, this is Jesus, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, this is very interesting. He says, the Sabbath was made, it was created for man. Therefore, I'm Lord of it. What does that entail? You're Lord of, the, of something that was made at creation? Therefore, he predates his incarnation somehow, some way, and he's actually God over creation. Our Lord says clearly the Sabbath was made for, for man, and since it is something that was made, our Lord is Lord of it, which implies that he's God and the creator and all those things. So the first thing is, Sabbath is a creation ordinance. Second thing is this. The Sabbath was incorporated into the Ten Commandments. Okay, I said I wasn't going to go off the notes. I real, really quickly. Let's go back to that divine rest. So here you have work, rest. And I said it's a pattern for Adam to follow in. Obey God, work, do your labors, and then rest on a weekly cycle. Now, do you think God created Adam to be a gardener in the Garden of Eden for the rest of eternity? Cycle after cycle after cycle, six days labor, one day rest. Six days labor, one day rest. If you read the rest of the Bible, Adam ends up being the first. There's There's a first Adam and there's a last Adam. The last Adam is our Lord Jesus Christ, who works and then rests. Hebrews 4. He, he does the work of redemption and he accomplishes it, and then he's crowned with resurrection rest. Do you think maybe 
that if we take that paradigm of the last Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ, and wonder about the first Adam and ask the question, okay, however long it would have taken for Adam to complete his work, if he would have completed his work, would he have been exalted into some restful state that's better than his created state? You know what the answer is? Yes. But he fell. He didn't get there. And theologians have wondered, how long would this probationary period last? We don't know. Um, We do know that when our Lord Jesus Christ finished his work of redemption, he was crowned with resurrection rest as the last Adam. So that first divine rest means just more than the weekly cycle ends with non-labor. It's also uh, an invitation for Adam to, as one man put it, come up here, obey me, and I'll reward you with a quality of life that's better than your created status. Now, we can't do that now, this side of the fall, but that's where the gospel comes in. Jesus obeyed, unlike the first Adam, unto the reward of eternal life. That's why everybody needs to be a Christian because you get connected to Jesus and you get glory. You get resurrection, you get eternal state. No connection to him, you get resurrection unto judgment and damnation. So that was off the notes. The divine rest has more to it than just the weekly calendar. It's actually a an emblem, an emblem of eternal rest. Okay, so remember Sabbath starts functioning that way way early on. That's why the Christians, when they started to write the hymns in the the 18th and 19th centuries, used the language of emblem of eternal rest because they went all the way back to the divine rest and they said, that's got to, that can't just be a God's tired. It's got to be more than that. And they put all the texts of scripture together and they said, ah, That's an emblem of eternal rest. He, our Lord Jesus Christ, assume our nature to enter into eternal rest. And the day that he he was raised from the dead signifies his works completed. And that becomes our emblem of eternal rest. Because the fullness of the salvation that he has won for us, we have not tasted yet. We've tasted a little. But if you haven't figured it out yet, we're not in the eternal state. And that's good news. Okay, second point is Sabbath was incorporated into the Ten Commandments. This is like a no-brainer, right? If you've read the Bible, uh, Exodus 28 through 11 reads, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That's just verse 8. And there's a bunch of details there. But we have this, uh, that which God instituted at creation, Sabbath. And by the way, six days labor gets incorporated into the Ten Commandments. Some Christians argue this way, since the fourth commandment is not repeated in the New Testament, it is not the, the rule of Christian ethics. Probably heard that before. Did you know the fourth commandment's not repeated? Did you know that the first four commandments are not repeated word for word? Did you know that the, the tenth commandment is a lot longer in the Old Testament than any places it's repeated in the New Testament? It's always reduced. So... Hope you don't want to go that way. Therefore, since the third commandment's not repeated, I can violate it? 
I don't have to worry about taking the Lord's name in vain. Since the second commandment is not repeated word for word, I can worship God any old way I want. Uh, since the first commandment's not repeated. Now, the essence of the commands are assumed, okay? But the word-for-word -word repetition doesn't take place. And so it's caused some people to say, therefore, no more fourth commandment. Now, one of the problems with that is people that have pictures of the fourth commandment in their, or, or paintings or whatever in their house, it's, it's uh, excuse me, the Ten Commandments. It has all ten of them up there, right? And Christians usually say, well, yeah, yeah, the Ten Commandments, yeah. And some Christians say, and if our country got back to the Ten Commandments, we'd be a lot better off. And my pushback is, but, but the fourth's involved with that. I think I've told the story of the, I'm not going to tell the story. You can ask me later. But it's incorporated in the Ten Commandments. I don't know of anybody who wants to argue against the perpetuity of the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth commandments of the Ten, uh, but not the other. Uh, Others. I'm going to argue for the perpetuity of all the repeated commandments and the abrogation of all the non-repeated ones. So then you're just going to hold to the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth commandments of the ten, and that's it? The Scottish man says, no can he do. It's not. We don't want to take this simplistic view. Um, there's another problem with trying to scissor out the fourth commandment, and it comes in my next point. So first of all, creation, Sabbath is creation ordinance. Second, Sabbath was incorporated in the Ten Commandments. Third, the Sabbath is an Old Testament prophecy about the days of the inaugurated New Covenant. Now, that, if that's true, that's pretty interesting. You got Sabbath prophecies in the prophets that look forward to the days that we live in? And the answer is yes, and I'm not going to go to all the texts we could go to, but I'll go to one. It comes in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33. This is the, the promise of, of new, the new covenant, which ends up being called also the everlasting covenant, the blood of the everlasting covenant, Hebrews 13, 20. The book of Hebrews refers to uh, at least the, the passage in Jeremiah, at least twice, if not th three times, maybe more. In verse 33, we read this, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. That's what I want to focus on. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. This is a prophecy about the future. Uh, the New Testament several times refers to this passage and applies it to both Jews and Gentiles who are believers in Christ, and every time it is applied to believers in, every time in the New Testament, it's applied to be believers in Christ across the board. No distinction between Jew and Greek on this. Now, listen to 2 Corinthians 3.3 3 and verse 6. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us, so the human instrument through which something happened to this, these people were Paul and his comrades, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God. Something invisible to the eye happened to these, soul, these people. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. Now, verse 6 says, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. 
So it's very clear the phrase new covenant that's used in Jeremiah 30, 31 is, is, is picked up by Paul here and the theology of God doing something on hearts, not on tablets of stone, but writing on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. That's the fulfillment of the promise in Jeremiah 31 and includes that law which God had written on stone tablets. He now writes on flesh and tablets, on hearts. See what I'm saying? How many commandments were on the stone tablets that God wrote? Ten. If it's the same law that he wrote on stone tablets, probably in reduced fashion, like the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet, full stop. Sometimes the New Testament does that when it repeats the commands from the Ten Commandments. It just abbreviates it. You shall not commit, uh, 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 shall not bear false witness. One time it says against your neighbor. I think another time it takes doesn't even include that. So, but if the point is that which was written on stone tablets is now as a fulfillment of the promise of Jeremiah's prophecy in the Old Testament, now that same thing that God wrote there is on the hearts of his people, then we got to deal with the fourth commandment because it's there, right? Okay, here's the story. I have a friend. As far as I know, we're still friends. And we met him in a church in Arizona one time, and I had written a book in defense of the Decalogue. Some of you remember when that book came out and all that stuff. It's got that picture of Moses with the two tablets, you know, I'm going to bust this over your, over your head. Um, I think he has a smile. It's famous, a famous painting. Anyway, I had written this book, and it caused some ruckus among some churches in Phoenix who... who weren't happy with it. This These churches in Phoenix, this church in Phoenix, in the summertime goes up to Flagstaff for a, a weekend, and they have a worship service at a park. So we're going to this other church, and we happen to go there because John Gerizzo, Pastor Gerizzo, recommended it up in Flagstaff. Beautiful old building. The preaching was good, and, you know, we were going to go there two weeks in a row. I meet, meet this man. And he says, um, he introduces himself, really sweet man. And uh, I, I introduce myself. He says, you're Rich Barcellus? And I said, yes. He said, I'm an elder at such and such a church. We, we don't really appreciate that book. And we just hit it off really well. I said, you know, we'd like to have you over for dinner. And he said, great. Where are you? I said, out at the lake. How, how will I know which house it is? I said, well, you just go down this dirt road. And it'll be the cabin with the two stone tablets and the Ten Commandments out front. And he laughed. And we had a great time with him. And so he says, um, we want to have you guys over next Lord's Day afternoon. And I said, how do we know which house it is? He said, we'll have the two stone tablets out there with the fourth commandment crossed off. And it was, remember, it was, it was great. It's funny. We ended up going one, one year, I don't know what year it was, to their service um, uh, at the park, and all these guys that didn't like my book were very nice to us, and so we could be nice. But some Christians think that way, and I think it's, uh, they need to think deeper about things. Here's my fourth point in reviewing all this. The Christian, or the Sabbath is mentioned often in relation to our Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospels. If you've read the Gospels, you know that really early on in his ministry, matter of fact, in the Gospel of Mark, the first thing he does is heal somebody on the Sabbath and gets in trouble. Why would the Lord heal somebody on the Sabbath 
get in trouble and keep doing it. Because keep reading, like in the Gospel of John, the man born blind, he heals him on the Sabbath, and he knew he was going to get in trouble for it. Not because the law of God forbade it, but because the stewards of the law of God had added to the law of God. And it is interesting to think of this. Christ performed some of his most wonderful miracles on the Sabbath day. And miracles are, in one sense, um, fixing a problem, right? Nature got all messed up because of sin. Grace renews and then ultimately perfects. So what these miracles end up being, see, in our day, you, they, if you watch TV, which I don't recommend, um, Except college sports on Saturday. Um, in our day, if you watch TV, miracles are the grounds for you to claim one from God. Jesus did all these miracles, therefore I'm going to claim a miracle. It's like, no. The miracles aren't as trivial as that. You get a prize if you claim it from God. The miracles are a preview of the eternal rest. A little snippet of his power is executed and it terminates upon lame people, blind people, and they get renovated, they get renewed. It's just a little window into, oh, if he's got power to do it on that single person's benefit, for that single person's benefit, then if I read, and when I read the rest of the Bible, it blows my mind. He's going to do it for hundreds and thousands and millions and maybe billions when he comes again, the dead in Christ shall rise first. He's going to speak, and souls will be infused back into miraculously renovated bodies. So he does a lot of his miracles on Sabbath. Listen to what he does in Luke 4. After the baptism and temptation of our Lord, we read these words in Luke 4. By the way, baptism... Temptation goes through water and comes out and gets tested. Ever seen that before? The Exodus, right? They went through water and then what happened? They got tested and they failed their test out in the wilderness. So Jesus is walking in the steps of ancient Israel in a different context, but he's kind of like, what Israel should have been? Obedient to God. So he goes through the waters of baptism. He's tempted by the devil. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out through all the surrounding region, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, somebody trained him, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. So, you know, like the Puritans, they would say, this is a work of piety. The Son of God incarnate went to church every Sabbath, you know, the, a day appointed for him. Now, observation here is that it was our Lord's custom to attend synagogue every Sabbath. That shouldn't surprise us, right? In the fullness of time, God sent forth this Son, 
born of a woman, born under the law, right? In order to obey it and redeem us from its curse. Surely he was raised this way by Joseph and Mary. He was born under the law in order to keep it for us. So there we have a work of piety. Jesus on the Sabbath day instituted from creation to his resurrection uh, went to public worship. Second text, Matthew 12. Uh, I will read the first eight verses. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. You've heard this before. This is a no-no for the Pharisees. And his disciples were hungry. This is a work of necessity under very adverse circumstances. They were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. There's provision for that in Leviticus someplace. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. So this is an accusation. Your disciples are transgressing the law of God, and you're for it. So basically, you're an antinomian. That means against the law. But he said to them, so whenever gospel writers say, but he said to them, really listen up. Okay, so here's what they're doing. They're seeing an action by Christ and his disciples. They're going back to the Old Testament, and they're condemning the action. Jesus says, you need to read the Old Testament a little more carefully. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat in a really technical sense, nor for those who who were with him, but only for the priests. So he, he says, look, there's a situation back there that seems to parallel ours and gives warrant for me and my disciples doing what we did. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath? I think he speaks hyperbole, hyperbole, hyperbolically here. Profane the Sabbath and are blameless. Yet I say to you, this is massive right here. That in this place, there is one greater than the temple. Who's the one that is in this place greater than the temple? Jesus is. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. See what he does there? My disciples are actually guiltless. They didn't transgress the Old Testament. You're condemning them. You're actually the guilty ones. You guys don't know anything about mercy, about deeds of mercy, about works of mercy. Now, he says this, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath, which assumes he's Lord of the temple as well, because he's greater than the temple. Therefore, he's Lord of the temple, and he's Lord even of the Sabbath, he says here. He's greater than the temple, the special place for public worship, and because of that, he is also Lord of the Sabbath also. So temple and Sabbath are under him, and they serve whatever purposes he has in store for them. There's no hint 
that he is abolishing temple and Sabbath absolutely. What I mean by that is in all senses. The Son of Man is Lord over the temple and Sabbath to abolish temple and Sabbath in all senses, no qualifications whatsoever. That's not what's going on here. There is a hint that both temple and Sabbath will be transformed under the authority of the Son of Man. The Son of Man title comes from Daniel 7. You remember reading that? There is this Son of Man who approaches, who ascends, the Ancient of Days, and he sits down, he's given a kingdom over all nations that will have no end. This is Son of Man prophecy in Daniel 7. Jesus takes the phrase, title, Son of Man, on his lips more than any other phrase, more than any other Bible, uh, any other anybody else in the Bible, uh, as far as the writers go. He is the Son of Man, who upon his ascension as the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath and the temple. The title and the activities of the Son of Man go together. So we can say this. The Son of Man in glory is Lord of temple and Sabbath. So the million-dollar question becomes, how does his lordship look over temple and Sabbath? And are both absolutely done away with or are both transformed to fit into his kingdom and are both conditioned by the fact that he accomplished his work. Now, some of you are going, we already know the answers to these questions. Tough, I'm going to say it, give them to you again. Listen to 1 Peter 2, 4 through 6. So we're looking for temple and holy day language, this side of the finished work of Christ in the New Testament. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 7, coming to him as to a living stone. If you know the Old Testament, you know where this language comes from. Temple, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. Who, who is he talking about? Jesus. You also, you Christians, as living stones, now he uses temple language for, uh, for the Christians. As living stones are being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, Isaiah 28, 16. Do you hear Isaiah saying, hey, God is going to be faithful to the promise that one would come and crush the head of the serpent, he's going to lay in Zion the cornerstone for a great, massive temple. Ultimately, the eternal state. Do you hear Isaiah saying that? He's not saying it in those words, but that's what this text means. This cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Who's he talking about? The third great answer to every Sunday school question ought to be Jesus, a chief cornerstone, our Lord. How are Christians described as living stones? How is he described? Chief cornerstone. What's the imagery? Temple building. Destroy this temple 
And in three days I'll raise it up. And by the time you read, the apostles are going, we're the temple. So there's transformation of temple. And then AD 70, it gets the temple, the physical temple gets smashed. But these Old Testament temple prophecies are fulfilled in Jesus and his church. If you read the New Testament very carefully, the temple and its priesthood have been transformed by Jesus. But what about the Son of Man's lordship over the Sabbath since his resurrection? Um, It is obvious to any casual reader of the New Testament that upon his resurrection, our Lord appeared to his disciples on the first day of the week more than once. Read the gospel accounts. There are several post-first-day resurrection appearances of our Lord to the disciples. It's just an interesting phenomenon. They have to wait seven days to meet him again. You think there might be something there? Probably. It's also obvious that the early Christians met on the first day of the week for public worship. Read the New Testament. You go, okay. They They met on the first day of the week. It's also clear that just as the supper that Jesus instituted is called the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11, 20. There is also one day of the week that is named that. The Lord's, my wife wants me to say our. The Lord's two services. The Lord's day. Okay, that's what it says. And this word, Lord's, is unique. Used twice in the New Testament. I've said this a lot, I'm going to say it again. Twice in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 11.20, Revelation 1.10, Lord's Supper, Lord's Day. Both In both places, this unique word modifies a noun, modifies supper, modifies day. And it means belonging to the Lord. Now, if you're tracking, you're going, okay, there's a supper belonging to the Lord. Yeah, the Lord's Supper, the one he instituted on the night in which he was betrayed. But aren't all suppers the Lord? Not in this way. There's a day that is belonging to the Lord. Aren't all days belonging to the Lord? Well, yes, but there's a unique propriety that Jesus has over the first day of the week that We ought to call it his day. And what's the big deal about the first day of the week? If we had trumpets, I'd say, blow the trumpets. Smash the cymbals. Beat the drums. Drum roll, please. What is it? It's the resurrection of the Son of God on the first day. Do you think something like that might have some effect on what day God's people worship? That's, I think, that's the best way to read the New Testament. The word Lord's is, excuse me, as used here, occurring twice, each time it modifies noun, supper and day. The supper or day in view is one that belongs particularly to the Lord Jesus, I would say, as resurrected and exalted. In other words, he lays unique proprietary claim to that meal and to that period of time. I'm quoting somebody else. The meal belongs to the Lord. The day belongs to the Lord. And then one more text. Ah, 
1041, I got a lot of time left. One more text to show the transformation of Sabbath under our Lord. Hebrews 4, 9, and 10 says this. There remains, therefore, a rest, New King James. Uh, some of you know the Greek word there is sabbatismos. It sounds familiar. I think the best rendering of it is Sabbath rest or Sabbath keeping. And you can listen to the sermon that was delivered a few weeks ago. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest or Sabbath keeping. New American Standard does translate it Sabbath rest for the people of God. The big deal about translating it different is that it's not the same word for rest all throughout the passage. This one place is a different word. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. People of God is a phrase in the New Testament that applies to Jews and Greeks who believe in Christ. It actually comes from the Old Testament. You weren't a people, but now you are the people of God. That was a promise in the Old Testament about the days in which we live. For, verse 10, he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. You see, where's this language, work and then rest, come from? Go way back there. First passage we looked at, Genesis 2, you have work and then rest. And now the same thing is being used here, but in a really different context. The people of God have a Sabbath rest to keep. Why? Because the Son of God entered his rest when he finished his redemptive work, just as God entered his rest on the seventh day at creation, thus instituting the Sabbath day by positive example and a pledge of glory to come, provided that the public person, Adam, would have finished his probation and earned that extra creational blessing from God. So, just as that, so Christ, because Adam sinned, and God sent a new Adam, so Christ entered his rest on the first day, the day he rose from the dead, the day his new creative or redemptive work was accomplished, or we might say was blessed, thus instituting the Sabbath day for the new covenant people of God by his own example. Here's uh, John Owen to help us. Therefore, did the Lord Christ enter his rest after he had finished and ceased from his works on the morning of the first day of the week when he rose from the dead, the foundation of the new creation being laid and perfected. Thank you, Brother John. That was very helpful. The foundation. What's, what's the kind of language there? Temple. Who Remember the, the chief cornerstone. Where's that language come from? The Old Testament. Paul uses it in Ephesians 2. And who is he talking about? Jesus. But us in relation to Jesus as a dwelling of God in the spirit, as a 
New Covenant temple. The foundation of the new creation being laid. What is the foundation of the ultimate new creation, new heavens and the earth? The obedient sufferings and glory of the incarnate Son of God for us and for our salvation. That's why Paul can say, first fruits of a great harvest. His resurrection is the first fruits of the one harvest of the resurrection of sons of God who will be in the special presence of God away from all of God's enemies forever. Without cancer and without losing teeth, I think. And no funerals. If I was Spurgeon, I would say, methinks it's a pretty big reason for the shifting of the holy day for God's people. And you know, it's, I said this a few weeks ago, today is the ripple effect of the resurrection of the Son of God all over the world. Every Sunday is that. Because whether, however Christians dot their I's and cross their T's on, on the fourth commandment and, and, and the Lord's day, by far, most of them meet Sundays, and no, they ought to meet every Sunday. And let's give them the benefit of the doubt. And they do. But why is that? Well, just custom. Yeah, it is custom, but when did it start? Because it's a pretty powerful custom, isn't it? It's been passed on, traditioned on. Here's our understanding of something that now regulates our week. What could cause that? The third grade answer to almost every question in Sunday school is Jesus. And so the last observation for today will be that the Sabbath is obeyed by Christians by keeping the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, holy. But we'll get to that after the break. So that's what we'll consider. Hopefully you can see this. I did this broad sweep, okay? We started at creation. Fall happened. The fourth commandment, the Sabbath from creation, gets incorporated into this unique period of time that's actually providing promises and types and shadows of greater things to come. What's the greater thing to come? It's Christ himself. The prophets have prophecies about the law being written on the hearts of Jews and Gentiles, prophecies about sacrifices, prophecies about eunuchs going into the temple on the Sabbath and being accepted. Isaiah 56, which is a very interesting one as well. Uh, All that's transpiring in the Old Testament. When Jesus comes on the scene, doesn't violate the Sabbath. He justifies works of piety, works of mercy, works of necessity. Those are our major three principles as Christians. If you want to follow Jesus, the Lord, on the holy day instituted for you, do works of piety, works of mercy, works of necessity, which we'll we'll deal with that later. Um, the The early Christians seem to meet every Lord's day. It's in the New Testament. It's in documents outside of the New Testament from either early 2nd century or late 1st century or maybe even mid-1st century. On the Lord's own day, gather together and break bread. Didache, the teaching of the 12. Some of you have heard that before. Um, Looks like they took the supper every week, which makes sense if he has a day and he has a supper and he says, meet on my day, and he has a supper connected to the day, which I think it is, 
makes sense that they did that. We'll do that a little later. But, you know, all of this is just theory unless you believe, Christ, uh, believe the gospel. Matter of fact, it might be a theory that makes you upset because you see what's happening here. God is Lord of time. He sets our calendars for us, okay? You can't say, yeah, this Sunday. I don't. You know, what if I did that? This Sunday, the 49ers are playing. It's the Super Bowl. Or, you know, it's Christmas. You know, that's just tradition. I don't hate the tradition, okay? I I like the tradition of Christmas Eve, especially in my family, because my mom always does the Italian thing, all right? Um, But it's just a tradition. It's not rooted in Scripture. You have to celebrate the birth of Christ December 25th every year or else you're in sin. It's Christian liberty. You can be a pro-Christmatarian or an anti-Christmatarian and not necessarily sin. Do we have any in? Don't raise your hand if you're an anti-Christmatarian. But, this, but the Lord's Day is different. That's just a given. That's our, you want a holy calendar? You got it. 52 times a year, meet on the first day of the week and sing praises and hallelujah because Jesus was raised from the dead. And if you're a believer, all the promises of God are yes and amen. I mean, if you look at it that way, instead of going, oh, I'm being cheated. I just think of all the stuff I could do on Sunday if I, if I just gave the, the McSabbath thing and then did my thing. I think God calls us, is call, calls us to more than that. And I think we cheat ourselves when we don't. Um, at least ask hard questions of our lifestyles. You read, and some of you have, you read... Some of the people in the, they lived in, it's usually the UK, but had these revivals. Sometimes it's in our country, but um, they had these revivals. And I remember hearing a situation where a guy went into a public place where they were selling and buying stuff on the Lord's Day, and his soul was so grieved, he put a podium up and he preached the fourth commandment, and John Elias was his name. And it was through that sermon, I don't know how many times he did it, that people got saved and renovated, changed their lives. And they, they, there are still people, I think, well, maybe not anymore. The books I read were like 30 years ago, but they were talking about something that was happening in the late 19th, early 20th century. And people say it was that sermon that, that woke up a slumbering consciences that knew better deep down. And then, um, you know, God changed them from, from the inside out. And you read about people that had communion with the Lord, not just in public worship, but dedicating themselves on the Lord's Day afternoon to read a book for an hour or two. Most of us can watch TV for days, right? You can do phone thingies for days. It's not easy to read, necessarily. I get it. It takes some work and training and all that stuff. But here's a guy who I don't even remember reading an entire book in college, and I graduated. I hated reading, slowly but surely. You develop good habits, but it takes takes time. Well, we'll consider some of these things after we take our break. Let's let's pray. Before I pray, I do want to read. I want to read you these words. I was going to do so after the second sermon. I probably will as well. But 
somehow, some way, we got to come to grips with these words in our lives. Because whatever they mean, it sounds really good. Isaiah 58, verses 13 and 14. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and shall honor him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words, then, here's the promise, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord. Lord, whatever that is, I want to do it, and I want to do it more. And I, this is the Lord, will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I told my wife on the way here, whatever, she read it. I said, read those verses. I said, I don't know if I really know what that means, but it sure sounds good, right? And, you know, the starving soul, if you want, I want more of Jesus in my life. Well, I don't know, maybe that has something to do with um, our, uh, the answer to our plight. Well, let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We pray your blessings on it. I know it's a, a way lot of material. We did a we did a um, a jet tour of scripture, but I trust that any and all places where I accurately explain the meaning of your word, I my hope is that you would bring it to the heads and hearts of all the hearers. For some, for conviction of sin, and initial saving repentance and faith in the gospel of the Lord Jesus. For others, correcting our thinking and correcting, we trust our living so that we could know the blessing of, of a text like that Isaiah passage that I just, just read. Help us. And we want you to receive our praises as we sing in light of what we've heard. Receive our praises through that chief cornerstone of this new temple that you are building that someday will be the new heavens and the new earth ultimately. Through Christ, we offer up our thanks and ask that you would receive our spiritual sacrifices of praise in his name. Amen.